Okay. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles this morning to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. I'd like to bring this psalm out this Thanksgiving Day because it so prepares our hearts for the celebration of Thanksgiving. What we need, brothers and sisters, is an attitude of gratitude. Uh, We celebrate Thanksgiving for the 402nd time since the pilgrims first celebrated it there in Plymouth Plantation. And in order to celebrate Thanksgiving, though, you need to be thankful. So we need to have something of a spirit of gratitude about us as we approach this day. Now, to be thankful means that you have a warm and a gracious heart, and it means that you have really sensed that you have been the recipient of a gift. In other words, it doesn't make any sense that you would be grateful if you've never received any gift. Does that make sense? If you've never received a gift, then you're not going to be thankful. You're not going to be grateful because you haven't received a gift. So the only way in which you're going to be grateful during this time of Thanksgiving is that you are sensitive to the fact that you have been the recipient of many gifts. So, so you have to be sensitive to that. You have to be aware of that. Somebody has to have put something into your hand. They would have had to sign a check for $8 million and put it in your hands. At the point at which you receive the $8 million, you're responding now in a spirit of gratitude because you realize that you have received a gift. Okay, now this is a very simple concept. Uh, Even little children should understand this. So let's begin with Psalm 111. I'm going to read the whole psalm this morning, so please stand together with me. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. And this is the very word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning. May it penetrate. We pray your Holy Spirit to open these up to us, that our hearts would receive these things. Father, more praise, more glory, for you are worthy. We want this, we desire it, O God, from ourselves. This morning we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So brothers and sisters, this is a praise psalm. What's that mean? Say it's a praise psalm, that means it's a psalm that gives God the praise. God is praiseworthy, and we return this praise to him. It's a public praise psalm as well. It's what we're doing right here this morning. Purpose is to to, to arrive at, at praise, and at the end of this message, the end of the psalm, the result of this psalm needs to be that we respond in praise and thanksgiving to God. Verse 1 says, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. That is, I will praise Yahweh, the Lord. I will praise God with my heart, my whole heart. The idea of that being that my whole heart is engaged with this. This is a warm praise to God. As our hearts are heated up, we present our praise according to the light of His Word. So there's heat, there's light involved in a praise service. Wherever there's good praise 
for God, there's light. There's, all the lights are on. We know why we're praising and we're responding in heat. We're hot. Responding with our whole hearts, engaged in this praise. So what is it to put your whole heart into the praise of our God? What is that? So your full attention. It's all your focus. Your love. Your energy. It's deliberate. It's intentional. Here it says, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. As if on Sunday morning at 7 a.m., you're planning, you're purposing, you're deliberately coming into church with a plan to praise God with your whole heart. You're going to set aside intentionally all distractions. I will not be distracted by people getting up and going to the bathroom. I will not be distracted by latecomers. I will not be distracted by babies crying. I will not be distracted by stray thoughts. I am here to worship God with all of my heart. I have intended to do it. I purposed it from uh, the last week, from 7 o'clock this morning as I got out of bed. I am focused. My heart is set. I am with my whole heart deliberately, intentionally planning to worship God for he is worthy to be worshipped in the assembly of the saints this morning. That's the attitude of the psalmist here. Praising God all in, 100%, focused, receiving the reasons for the worship of God through the psalms and hymns and through the message, through the exhortation, warming up to it, and then then with everything in us, blessing his holy name. That's it. I will praise the Lord. With my whole heart. What if somebody came in this morning and said, I will praise the Lord half-heartedly today. I am convinced that God is worthy of my half-hearted worship. How would you respond to that? You would say, that's a false God. That's idolatry. That's what we would say is, If this God is worthy of your half-hearted worship, this God is of no real interest for any of us here. That's an idol you've configured in your own mind. That's just idolatry. No, no, if this is the true and living God, if he has created heaven and earth, if he is everything he says he is in the word, if he's everything you believe him to be, then you're coming to worship him. You will worship him with your whole heart. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. This is the way public praise goes. This is what we do on Sunday mornings. We come together for the praise of our God throughout the rest of the psalm, verses 2 through 9. We receive the reasons why the praiseworthiness of our God, specifically in terms of his works, These are the characteristics of his works, the attributes and the adjectives used to describe the works of God. So we open our eyes and we we read these things, we we experience them, we look around us, we see these characteristics, these attributes and these descriptives. So let's go through them quickly. There's eight descriptives throughout the psalm. Verses 2 to 3, the works of God are great, they're honorable and glorious, Extremely big, attention-grabbing, can't miss them. Majestic, splendorous, a beautiful sight to behold. Drawing one in where one is increasingly interested in seeing these great works of God. Secondly, these works are righteous and they endure forever. The works of God are righteous. They're done in righteousness. They endure forever. They have enduring quality about them. God's works involves the overcoming of all evil, which means that they're much more attractive to us. The judgments of God and the mercies of God, the covenant redemptive work that he does through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, overcomes everything. So, So whatever is going on in terms of the evil that men do is, they engage in the wars and they do all these rotten things out of greed and covetousness and, and sheer evil and such. 
you see these on the news sites, by the way, it's not even worth it. It's not worth it to go on these news sites to see all the evil that men do. Because God's righteousness endures forever. God's works are more attractive than Fox News. Then thirdly, God gives food to those who fear him, verse 4. We've never seen the righteous begging bread. We see drunks who have abandoned their Christian heritage on the street corners. Yes, we see those folks begging bread. But the righteous do not beg bread. God is good to his people. God has given food to those who fear him. He always has. Number four, he's faithful to his covenant promises. Verse five, God always comes through for those who believe his promises. He's true to his promises. He comes through for them. We can have confidence in that. Number five, God gives his people the heritage of the nations. What does this mean? Well, it means that the meek really do inherit the earth. Maybe it's a little discouraging. The West has gone the direction it has, and Hindus and Muslims now uh, are taking the top office in Scotland and England. So those who were receiving the gospel 200 years ago are now uh, ruling in the post-Christian nations of Scotland and England. Uh, But that's only because the West has turned away from God. They have, in pride, turned away from the living God, shaking their fist in God's face. And so, so they're not meek. These are not the people who will inherit the earth. No, no, God gives his people, his people, the heritage of the nations. That's verse 6. And then uh, number 6, his works are faithful and reliable. That is, they don't need to be corrected. It's not as if God has a plan B. Someone said God has no plan B. And that's a good way to put it, that God has a plan that he's working out through history. And uh, though it may seem at points that his kingdom may be slipping a notch or two, that's not really what's going on at all. God is successful in all that he does. His works are faithful, reliable, they are just. He's working everything out according to a perfect plan. Then number seven, verse nine, he has redeemed his people. He's brought us out of slavery uh, to sin and the devil to, to be redeemed and to be set free. And there's nothing like redemption. Redemption really is the pinnacle or the very apex of his work. Uh, he has sent redemption to his people. He's commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. So redemption. So this is where we focus in on. We always come to the apex of God's works. We work from creation into providence and then eventually climb the mountain to God's great redemption. As you know, if you watch movies and you see the way that redemption comes about in stories that men write, redemption is the very best to reconcile between broken parties, between a broken marriage, to be renewed, to be regenerated, to be restored. To see the restoration of the locusts have eaten and the restoration of relationships. What is this? Restoration, redemption, reconcile, the re, 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 re. God is good at re-ing. He re-ings. He redeems. He's, he's taken that which was of some value to us. We've lost it. That's what happens. We, we, we lost all these good things, life at the fall of man into the garden. We lost relationship with God. We lost all these big things. We lost our privilege. We lost our good state of being in the fall. God restores that which was lost. And the restoration of that which is lost is even more glorious than the first provision of that at the creation of man. So the redemption of it was the most amazing thing. It's the thing that, that causes us to be so overwhelmed that God is so good and that God would uh, send his only begotten son in order to reconcile us to himself. And then finally, number eight, he's commanded his covenant forever. He's commanded his covenant forever. What does that mean? That means that when God works, this is something about his works, God is intentional. He is deliberate. He plans to do it. What, what you see him accomplishing in his dealings is exactly what he set out to do. He, he means everything that he's done. When you see God's works, one thing you can say is that God meant to do that. So much as an artist intends every aspect of a painting, the, the genius artist that spends a year or two working out 
an amazing painting. Every stroke was intentional. Every feature of his design was put there. And God puts it there because of his wise and good intention to put it there. These are the works of God as expressed here in verses 2 through 9. But now I want to spend the rest of the message focusing in on verses 2 and 4. 2 and 4. Who are the people that come together to worship God in the assembly of the saints? Who are these praisers who will worship God? So will you be worshiping? Will you be praising? Will you be thanking God uh, today or during this Thanksgiving season? That's the question I want to see answered this morning as we look, we study in on these key verses from verses 2 and 4 of our passage this morning. First thing we see in verse 2 is the works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. These are the people who really love to study the works of God. These are those who lean into the study of what God did. They're just drawn into it. They want to see what God is doing. They want to know what God did, and they want to talk about it. They want to hear about it. They don't want to hear what I did or what somebody else did. They want to know what God did. This is the thing that matters more than anything else. They're drawn into the message. They they want to see it. They want to study it. So if we're ready for Thanksgiving this morning, well, I'm not really feeling that thankful at this time. There are periods of time in our lives where we aren't really feeling that grateful. Just a little grumpy. I guess everybody here goes through a period of time where they just don't feel like praising God. Just not grateful. And they, to be honest, would say, I, I just don't feel it. I just feel more dead and cold. And, and, and actually, when somebody else is actually so smiley and grateful about all this, it kind of irritates me. Because I don't feel that way. I'm just more bah humbug. And so, this is a message that I hope will awaken something in us that our hearts to be ready for Thanksgiving this year. That's my goal. By the time Thursday rolls around, our hearts will be warmed to Thanksgiving and praise. So we begin again in verse 2. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. So I want to give you four stepping stones to Thanksgiving this morning. The first thing is that we must revel or rejoice in the works of God. We take pleasure in them. We appreciate them. And I've already mentioned this. But I want to give you an example. Children, you know about the dung beetle. You've heard about the dung beetle. Perhaps you've seen some videos on the dung beetle. Let's talk about the dung beetle for a moment. The dung beetle collects dung. He's all about dung. He smells dung. Yes, he eats dung. He collects dung and rolls it into a gigantic ball, and he fights against other dung beetles, sometimes for hours on end, to defend his little ball of dung. And he buries it. And then his little wife dung beetle lays her eggs in the dung, And that sustains the little guys until they are able to emerge out of the little ball of dung. Now, these dung beetles are all about dung. And that is what the world is all about. If you want to know what the world is all about, the world is all about dung. Now, what about us? We cannot be focused on dung. Amen? We, we cannot be focused on the dung beetle per se either, but we must be focused on God who made the dung beetle. And this is what makes the video so interesting. I'm not saying don't watch videos of the dung beetle. I think we should. But let me ask you this, if, if you were charged, this would be helpful to the engineers like myself, if you were charged 
to clean up the world. Because here's what happens. Children, you need to understand, there are quadrillions of animals around the globe. They don't go on the potty. just want to be very clear about this. They don't flush it down the, the drain. They just don't. They, they leave their residue all over the earth. Now, if, if God assigned to us the dominion task of cleaning up his world, because remember, he's created these dung beetles for that purpose. But if he assigned that task to us, we as human beings would have to create lots of vacuum cleaners. And we would have to run over the surface of the globe. Imagine how much work that would be to clean up all of that dung around the world. Now, I've got an even better idea. Why don't we create billions of little bugs called dung beetles who will automatically spread around the world. They reproduce as well, and they will be assigned the task to clean up the whole world. That's phenomenal. That is just phenomenal. This is something that gets us into the service this morning. Suddenly we're, we're interested in what the pastor is saying. Suddenly our hearts leap with the sense that God is ultimately wise and powerful and much more of an effective engineer than anybody who has ever lived on this earth. That God has created a system of these tiny little bugs that can crawl around the entire earth and bury the dung and create a world that is still beautiful and healthy and doesn't spread diseases. Here's my point. Everyone appreciates something. Now, you can appreciate one dung. That's, that's what the world appreciates, dung. You could appreciate the work of various intestinal systems of various organisms around the world. You, you could be an aficionado of all of that. Or number two, you could be impressed and appreciating the works of the dung beetle. Or you could appreciate the work of God. You see what I'm saying? Now, you can apply this to anything. You can apply this to the things that people enjoy, sexuality or um, money and buying houses and building houses and living in houses, all these other things. You see all these things around us. Now, where are you focused? What do you appreciate? What's the thing that matters most as you study science? What is the thing that draws you in? That's my question. Are you God-centered? Are you drawn into? Do you love? Do you appreciate? Do you delight in the works of God? That's my question for you this morning. What kind of person are you? Intestines? Dung beetle or God? What is it? Which do you find more impressive? By the way, Jesus took our dung upon himself. Keep that in mind as well. The most beautiful thing in the world is that he died on the cross for us in order to make us righteous, in order to place his beautiful garments of righteousness over us. That's, that's why he did it. And so as we view the cross, we're not as concerned for what the Jews did or for what the Romans did. We're concerned for what God was doing at the cross of Jesus Christ. That draws us in. We can look at it from a thousand different angles. The various facets of this diamond, you could pull various directions. And and you could put together thousands, if not tens of thousands of sermons, exhortations. The beautiful diamond of what God did in Jesus Christ by his death and resurrection. So that's number one is to revel and rejoice in the works of God. But that may be hard to do if you haven't done this. So let's take the second stepping stone into Thanksgiving this morning. That is, you've got to reflect on it. You've got to review God's works. If we are to take pleasure in the works of the Lord, we must first notice them. We must study them. So this verse says, the works of the Lord are great. But why? To us, why? To us. Studied. Studied, brothers and sisters. Studied by all those who take delight in them. We must reflect on them. I've been reading John Flavel's Mystery of Providence, one of the very best books ever written in Christian history. It's tremendous. 
he warns against, quote, a slight transient glance at the works of God. This is one of our problems as everything flashes by us too quickly. We're diverted into other things uh, too quickly, like the two-year-old running through the Louvre. Like the two, you know, where's the snack? Where's the vending machine? Isn't that what the two-year-old does in the Louvre? The Louvre is the art museum in Paris. Okay, so the two-year-old is running. Where's, where's the Twinkie machine? He's not interested in, in studying the great works of art. But, but no, no, no. We're not to, to p- produce the slight transient glance. Nor, listen to this, the cold, historical, unaffecting rehearsal. It's not, not to be the way we look at the works of God. Amen, brothers and sisters? We were created for this. We were created for what? To notice God. To notice that work of his hands. To appreciate him. We were created to be something more than a dung beetle. So brothers and sisters, fill your hearts with thoughts of God and his ways. Fill your hearts with it. Be overcome by a single work of God. Be blown away. I'm, I'm actually quite blown away by the dung beetle. I, I actually am. But now let's move on to the other billions upon billions of manifestations of the work of God all over the place. In creation, providence, redemption, you name it. Move on to the next. But study. Consider. What are you thankful for? Find one thing and focus upon it. And take the time. This is, this is where we don't do very well. In our society where everything flashes by you in a YouTube, what is it, three minutes, four minutes? They say don't produce anything over eight minutes long. Take the time to contemplate it, to study it, to consider, to put aside the focus on the intestinal functions, to think about God who made the intestines. Let your reflections dwell upon the works of God's providence in an extensive and intensive way. Again, John Flavel. But the other thing is it takes work, it takes effort to study. Now, most people will tell you this, that in order to pass through a bachelor's of science degree, you're going to have to study. It's possible, I guess, that some universities, they don't need that anymore. My understanding Oregon, you don't need to study anymore in the state of Oregon. But the rest of the world is studying. And the world understands this. You have to study. And so you have to study the works of God. Plumb the depths of it. There actually is... No bottom to this. Listen to what Paul says in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We couldn't possibly touch the bottom of the ocean of God's ways and works. They're infinite oceans of wisdom and goodness. But is it worth it to plumb them? Is it worth it to press down? Here's an analogy. Don't let your thoughts swim like feathers upon the surface of the waters, but sink like lead towards the bottom. Again, John Flavel. The the tendency for us is not to to dwell, to meditate, to focus in on, to spend time with it, put effort into it. Don't let your thoughts swim like feathers upon the surface of the waters, but sink, let your mind sink like lead to the bottom. Psalm 107 is this constant cry, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works among the children of men. And so I I think the very best thing to meditate upon is God's works of providence and redemption in your own life. What has he done in your life? Focus in upon that thing that he did, upon the rescue that he's brought to you. Come back to that story again and again. Psalm 107 speaks of the guy lost in the desert. Do you remember when you were so thirsty? Do you remember when you so thirsted for something, you didn't know what it was? 
You just knew that your soul was languishing in a desert of nothingness. And so you so wanted something. And and then God brought you to the city. God brought you to the church. God brought you to a place where the word of God is brought in. God brought you to a place of health and life. And, And you found a place in this city and it was a beautiful thing. Or bound in the devil's dungeon. You remember when you were bound in the devil's dungeon of self-interest, of selfishness, of judgmentalism, of covetousness, or lust for this or that, or whatever it was. And yet God set you free. Jesus came in, broke the chains, dragged you out of the prison, and you remember the broken chains, and you still have remnants of the handcuffs broken, and you celebrate these things, and you talk of them again and again, or remember being sick and anorexic and hopeless and depressed and all of that, but God brought you a great health and a restoration uh, for your life, or where you were fearful or terrified on the high seas of, of life, the oceans of hurricanes were all around you, you lived a life of fear and terror. Do you remember that? And do you remember how God brought you into a place, a safe harbor of of trust and and everything was good from there on out and now you had hope and now you knew that God's hand was on your life. Do you remember these things? Can you relate to them? Can you focus in upon them and think upon them? That brings me to the last verse, the final exhortation of Psalm 107, uh, verse 43, whoever is wise will observe these things. Whoever is wise will think on these things, observe these things, study these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. One of the reasons we don't understand the mercies of the Lord, the loving kindness of the Lord, is we receive the gift, but we don't look at it. Put it on a shelf, move on. No, 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 you've received the gift. The indescribable gift, there it is in your hands. Look at the gift. Spend some time studying it. Consider it for a moment. The reason there's no, ing- no gratitude is because you haven't even considered it. What is this gift? What is the value of it? What was the value of it in the eyes of God? What is the uh, value of it to your own life? Study it. Study the works of God. Let's move on to number three. I've already alluded to this. God's works are memorable, rememberable, and to be remembered. Verse 4, he has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. God's works are memorable. What does that mean? They stand out. Can't miss them. God separates the Red Sea, destroys the greatest empire on earth, saves a few people who were enslaved in Egypt. Phenomenal story. Phenomenal story. They do blockbuster movies on this in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, It was conducted on a scene that was miles wide, couldn't miss it. Millions of people saved. An entire empire drowned in the Red Sea. Really couldn't miss it. Really couldn't miss it. A prostitute in Jericho clearly remembered it. Absolutely 40 years later, she's still saying, Whoa, what God did. Our hearts melted when we heard the news. Our hearts melted for the powerful God of Israel who is the maker of heaven and earth, who is the only God of gods. And she has this amazing faith. And yet, what, three, four weeks after the Red Sea, the people of God have abandoned Psalm 106. Israel forgot. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Forgetfulness is the basis of apostasy. Forgetfulness is the reason why 99.999% of them were killed. They died in the deserts of Sinai. Forgetfulness was it. They forgot about it. Psalm 78 verse 9. The Ephraimites, armed with a bow, they turned back on the day of battle. But why did they do that? Ephraimites, they were ready for battle, turned back in the day of battle. But why? They forgot his work and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt and the fields of Zone. He divided the sea, let them pass through it. The rest of the chapter, it's all about that. But they forgot all of it. They just forgot about it. They refused to remember what God did. 
Say, who in the right mind would forget about what God did at the Red Sea two months later? I mean, who in the right mind? This ungratefulness, brothers and sisters, is rooted in an evil and a malicious and an ungrateful heart, a rebellious heart. That's what it is. The thing that, that, that really motivated their blocking out the greatest thing that God ever did in the redemption of his people to that point was what? They hated God. They rebelled against God. They had a hard heart against God. That was the reason. To not remember means a growth in ingratitude and bitterness towards God and his judgments. It's a growth in pride. And it turns into an irrational insanity and the grossest idolatry, which is what you saw with the golden calf. That's what happens when people forget what does Psalm 103.2 say? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. To remember is to believe. It's to rejoice and participate and receive his benefits. You know, people do remember things. People don't forget everything. The world remembers Gandhi, George Washington, Christopher Columbus. Of course, now they're destroying all the man- monuments. The modern world is erasing memories. All memories. The most extraordinary thing about the Western world today is they're erasing all memories. It's a revolutionary culture. We're supposed to live in the revolutionary culture, but the world destroys all heritage, erases reality, and burns itself up. But that's not us. It's not what we do. We draw the important memories back into our minds. It's a willful, disciplined, and deliberate contemplation on something that happened in the past. We establish monuments in our minds. Monuments in our minds. By repetition, by focus, by study, we remember these things. The Red Sea, the cross, the empty tomb. Branded in our minds, tattooed on our hearts. The skin is far too superficial. The modern world is way too superficial. No, no, we need a tattoo on our hearts of these things. Forget the tattoo on the skin. No way. It's got to be in the heart. It's got to be written on the heart. For most of us, we'll consider what God has done in our own lives, the outbreakings of mercy and faithfulness and love that God has poured out upon us. Start with this, guys. Always start with this. Where was I? And was I worthy? Was I earning? Did I, did I do something to merit any of God's goodness? What was I? What, did I, what was I doing? Where was I going? Where was I turning away from God, etc.? And then... For some reason, God pulled me in. God did something in my life. The little providential shifts in your life that put you in a new direction. Think through those things. What, what was that thing that God did for you 28 years ago? Just It was a tiny little thing. But that tiny little domino in your life set a new direction for you that was so critical the ways in which God has used the negative in a positive way in your life. Where would you be if not but for the grace of God? Think of the trajectory you were on. Think of that. I don't know what it was, a terrible habit of some sort. You were on that trajectory. Where would you be? Where do people typically go on that trajectory? Where, where do you watch them go? Where do they end up? That was your trajectory, but you're not there today. Why? Why? You see, ask yourself these things. Consider the providences of God in your own life. But some of you may say, but I'm just too depressed. I get it, the dark night of the soul. I get it. We go through the dark night of the soul, and sometimes we say, I'm just too depressed to think about anything but myself and the negative. I'm under so much affliction. Well, that's your first problem. What are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about myself and my condition. 
Oh, no, that's not the works of God. Is that the work of God? No, that's not the works of God. Get back to the works of God. What is God doing? You're focused too much in on the intestinal tracts of the spiritual life. Don't be so internalized on what you're studying about your own life. Friends, I'm coming down to the key issue for all of us. Where, where is your focus? Look at what Asaph says in Psalm 77. So depressed. Psalm 77, one of the most depressing psalms. So here is, is you and me at points in the dark night of the soul. We're depressed. We're so cast down. We're so depressed over what's going on in the world, what's happening to myself, until verse 10. But I, this is what Asaph says, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on your work and talk of your deeds. This is the great cure for depression. This is it. In verse 13, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. That is, be sure to come to church. Who is so great a God is our God. You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your right arm redeemed your people, etc. So see, now he's so overwhelmed with a, a vision of the work of God that his heart is lifted up, no longer depressed. That's Asaph in Psalm 77. Beautiful. Just beautiful. But then we come upon one of the most unusual exchanges between Jesus and his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. And I want to bring this back in one more time. Very unusual. Listen to this exchange. When his disciples had come to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they had forgotten to take bread. And then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And then they reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we have taken no bread. Which, have, when Jesus had perceived it, he said to them, O oh, ye of little faith, why reason you among yourselves? You see, Jesus is presenting a spiritual lesson. They're back to the fact that, all right, who forgot the lunch? Here we are, all the way across the Sea of Galilee, and we're going to starve to death. Who forgot the lunch? Always coming back to the menial little things that usually create conflict and anxiety and so forth. And how many times has this happened in our lives? And Jesus is driving home a spiritual lesson, but they don't get it. They don't get it. So Jesus said, O ye of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets you took up, neither the seven loaves of the 4,000, and how many baskets you took up? What is Jesus saying? Focus in, man, not on who, who forgot the lunch. Don't focus in on these sorts of things, but, but you've got to remember the loaves. You forgot the loaves. Why did you forget the... Yeah, we forgot to bring loaves for lunch. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about who forgot to bring the lunch. I'm talking about the fact that you forgot the loaves. You didn't remember the loaves. Jesus creating nine tons of food out of a little boy's lunch. The violation of the second law of thermodynamics. The adding of carbon-based substances to the universe. Nine tons of it. Any scientist worth his salt would have preserved the loaf and studied it for the next 60 years. Material that did not exist in the universe added to the universe in roughly 33 AD. That's impressive. Probably keep that for your grandkids. Pass it on. Somebody violated the second law of thermodynamics. Only the hardness of men's hearts would have ignored that. Disciples were too hardened against God and against Jesus. They forgot all about it. You see, what remains in the mind is that which is significant. The mind is interesting. I've studied some of brain theory. The mind, the short-term memory, only handles between six and nine things at one time. And yet, it's absorbing tens of thousands of inputs. The mind is a gigantic sieve. It's the way brain scientists describe it. It's a gigantic sieve. You're pouring tens of thousands of things through it. You will decide what is significant and what is not. What remains in the mind is that which is significant. 
that which is love, that which is preeminent in importance. That is, at that point, everybody should have said, this is big. I mean, this is really big. This is God. This is the work of God. This is supernatural. Also, remains in the mind has to be that which is believed. Problem is, doubt steps in, tries to bring physical, material, naturalistic explanations. I don't know. Maybe dirt turns into bread occasionally. A materialistic explanation for it. No. No, no. There needs to be faith. Absolutely faith. That's why the exhortation fits directly into what we're saying. There is no natural explanation for nine tons of food just appearing on the scene. Faith realizes there's an invisible source. There's a supernatural nature of what just happened. Jesus is the supernatural Son of God walking on planet Earth. That's the way they should have responded. They should have believed in Jesus. But they didn't at that point. Jesus asked them the question, how many baskets did you take up? The expectation is that there is contemplation or consideration or study or reflection or remembrance. If you were struck by lightning, you would remember it. Right? If, if you were in the grave four days, raised from the dead, walking out of a tomb, you would remember that. That's pretty significant. That's a life-changing experience for you. These are the things you're supposed to remember. The significant things. The things that matter. Versus the giving way to diversions constantly. The giving way to diversions. Every time Satan steps in with a diversion... Maybe your eyes are shifting too quickly. Like, oh, oh, what is Satan saying? What is this diversion coming into the message this morning? I got to go right to that. What is this diversion in my mind this morning? I need to go right to that. What is this? Faithlessness. Doubt. Rebellion against God. To that which is significant. If God grows a tree from a seed, and in six years you harvest 20 bushels of apples, where did the apples come from? Dirt? Go out there and make some dirt patties and bring in an apple for me. Carbon dioxide? Hydrogen water? Two hydrogens, one oxygen mixed together, well stirred? Going to bring a red apple that I can consume? Is, is that, so tell me, how does dirt turn into ten bushels of apples? Tell me this. Study the apple. Study it. The works of God. What is God doing? To pass over it, to say, whatever, Lazarus raised from the dead, nine tons of new food created out of nothing, an apple showing up, bushels of apples coming out of one seed, fed by dirt and carbon dioxide, who cares? What is that? Somebody change the channel. Let's watch another stupid movie. What is this? Superficiality. Vanity, emptiness, brainlessness, flakiness. This is a dung beetle. This is a dung beetle. I don't want to be a dung beetle. You want to be a dung beetle? So remember, brothers and sisters, remember. Remember the loaves. Rejoice and delight in what God has done. Reflect upon it. Remember it. And then here's the fourth. Relate it. Oh man, Todd, I thought you saw my notes this morning. What he said. Relate it to others. It's the final point. Relate what God did. That's the theme of Psalm 9. I'll end here. Psalm 9. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. There it is again. It starts the same way Psalm 111 starts. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When your enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence, and so forth. So when God has done a great thing, tell of it. Tell others about it. The man at the Gadarenes, he was cleansed of a legion of demons. 
And what Jesus say? Go back and tell your friends what great things God has done for you. This is what we're to do. One generation after another shall praise your name and shall declare your mighty acts. So declare it to others. Open your mouth. I know the devils don't want you to say it. But you've got to press through. You have to overcome that. You will overcome by the word of your testimony. Absolutely. But it is hard sometimes to open your mouth and say the works of God and to encourage others with the works of God, what he has done in your life. Ah, oh, brothers and sisters, we got to do this. we got to tell about the amazingness of God's creation. Thank you, brother, for doing this. Let's tell, God, tell everybody about the amazingness of God's providence. I've been working on this for three, four years. The providential work of God's in history, American history, world history, etc. I'm just overwhelmed at this point after studying, I don't know, 50 to 100 books on world history. Unbelievable what God has done in history. Wow, I'm blown away by the amazingness of God's works in creation and providence and, of course, redemption as well. So open your mouth and just say it, the, the mighty acts of God. In fact, in Acts 2, what is the great outcome of the Pentecost? This is the thing that set me back. I thought, wow, there's no carpet biting. There, there's no sort of weirdness and being slain in the Spirit and weird things like this. What is it? What is the manifestation immediately of 120 people filled with the Holy Spirit of God? What is the ultimate objective to all of that at Pentecost? For the reason for the tongues, the purpose for the enabling power of the Holy Spirit coming over them. There it is in Acts 2, verse 12. Each of us, this is the testimony of all of the nations gathered into Jerusalem. This is what they're saying. Each of us are hearing it in our own language. What are they hearing? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That's the whole purpose of the church being filled with the Holy Spirit. We are going to run out and we're going to tell people of the mighty works of God working in our lives, sharing it with others within the congregation and sharing it with others all around us. That is the quintessential demonstration of the work of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of Holy Spirit power upon a congregation in Elizabeth, Colorado. That's what it's going to look like. And let nothing get in the way of that declaration. That praise, that wonder, and that glory. Nothing to get in the way of it. Nothing. This is the highest purpose of our lives. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, oh, that we remember. Oh, God, that we would relate it. Oh, God, that we would study it. Oh, God, that we'd rejoice in it. Oh, God, that we would delight in it. The great works of God. Father, forgive us for missing out. Forgive us for missing it, for passing over it. God, we would stand at the cross again and see what great things our God has done and share it with others. Testify to it as my brother exhorted us, and I'm just saying amen to that now. Father, that that would happen by the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Oh God, if nobody's experienced the mighty work of God's redemption, that they could share it in this congregation. Oh, that would happen to them now. Redeem them. Help them, oh God, to see the reconciling work of the Savior Jesus in their lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing a song of praise. This is the great outcome of all of this reviewing the great works of God, guys. This is it. We come to the Lord's table, and for those of you visiting, uh, I encourage you to look at the back of the bulletin where we explain how we do the Lord's table here at the church three reasons why we do this sacrament. And every one of those reasons, I was surprised, fit into the message perfectly. Um, To remember the work of Jesus until he comes. And that's what we just said, right? To be thankful for what he has done. As to rejoice in it and be thankful for what he has done for us. And to declare or relate what he has done to others. So this sacrament is specifically designed for declaration, for remembrance, for, rem- for thanksgiving and rejoicing in the great work that Jesus has done for us. But let us first, before we remember, let us study the loaf. Let us study it. Spend some time to look at it. Each of you participating will receive one of these. 
So my encouragement in line with the study is study the loaf. Consider the loaf. Jesus says it. Study the loaf. So let us study the loaf. Jesus took the bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. So as we study the loaf, the bread, the first thing I notice about this bread is that it is torn. It is ripped. It is broken. Do you see that, my brothers? Jaggedy edges. So this is the first observation as I study the loaf this morning. And Jesus said, this is the First Corinthians 11 rendition of it, this is my body that is broken for you. Torn apart, ripped up for you. So study this. Remember, Jesus was torn. His side was torn by the spear of the soldier. And as his side was torn apart by the spear of the soldier, the curtain in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom at the very same time, indicating that there was now no more of a separation between God and his people. So why was he torn up like this? Why was his body torn in order to reconcile us to himself, to God? Colossians 2 and verse 7. You, who were once alienated from God, now he is reconciled you in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In other words, the reason why Jesus' body was torn and ripped like, like this piece of bread is in order that God would be reconciled to us, that all divisions between God and man would be torn down And not only that, but every impossible barrier between Jew and Gentile, between Palestinian and Israeli, between any two people in this church, every impossible barrier is utterly demolished in the body of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And we have total unity under the bloody, broken body of Jesus Christ. That's phenomenal. That's just phenomenal. Let's move on. The second thing I notice is that this is edible. Now, I know this is obvious, but we're studying the loaf right now, focusing in on the loaf itself. What do we see about this? This is edible. This is the thing that gives us nourishment and life. You see, that's why you eat things, because if you didn't, you would starve to death. So as you eat the bread. You receive nourishment and life. And this is mysterious. Jesus told us in John 6, again, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the living bread, Jesus said, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So by eating the bread, which is Jesus, we receive life And live forever. Now, the Bible says we have to eat by faith. We don't just eat, but we eat by faith. That's really critical. And we we don't know exactly how the Spirit administers through the means of grace, but He does. The bottom line here is Jesus has come by His body, by the piercing of His side and the blood that flows down. Jesus has come to bring life to a world of death. He's come to bring eternal life, life for the whole world. He spreads his life all over the world. And I don't know how one single body can do that. I don't know how that happens. But Jesus, by this single body, which probably takes up about, I don't know, four cubic feet of space, Jesus spreads his life over the whole globe by his word and by the sacrament. He gives life to us. His body gives us his life. His body gives us love and life that flows through us. And then finally, the last thing to say is that this is a gift. So as receive this, Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. So as you receive it in your hand today, 
receive it as a gift. You're not not paying anything for this. You're receiving the gift of Jesus. Now, again, as a sign. This is a sign. And the Holy Spirit administers it to us in a spiritual way. But remember, as, as he gives us himself as a gift, it is the unspeakable gift. But also, if he gives himself as a gift, how shall he not with himself also freely give us all things? So this is really the down payment of a, a much bigger gift that we cannot even conceive of as we receive the gift of Jesus today. So let us be thankful for Jesus. Where would we be without him? I leave you with that tidbit. Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father in heaven, oh, what a gift this is, that Jesus, his side would be pierced. So much reconciliation and redemption, so much needed by us. Oh, God, there's so much needed. In the world, there's so much needed. There's so much war and killing and death. Jesus came to solve all of that, to reconcile us to yourself, to overcome the threat of judgment for us, to forgive our sins, and to redeem us from the power of sin. All of this a gift. All of this a gift. Father, as we consider this loaf, help us to remember that Jesus was torn, ripped apart for us. And indeed, he has done this to give us his life, to feed us with life. Oh, that we'd receive it now, every one of us by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.